0: Tonight, I'm going to dare to venture into some murky and potentially hazardous waters. I might offend some of you. I might find myself uh, stepping on some toes, treading in some areas that uh, are unusual for conservative talk radio. But uh, I think we need to go there. I think we need to dare to ask ourselves some some deeper, more meaningful cultural questions that get beyond the, the typical news talk to the underlying foundation of what our culture is all about and what it proceeds from. How's that for an intro? Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for a closing argument. We've had some doozies as of late. Been having a lot of fun with you folks. You can do a search for a closing argument in your iHeartRadio app to get to our channel and listen to past episodes. You can join us tonight, 651-989-5855. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. So there was a story from over the weekend. That we've yet to get into yet here on the program, and we're we're gonna broach it here today and I've been thinking about how to go about this because you know it's 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 inherently a touchy issue, not just because of the issue as such but because of the specific context in which we're going to discuss it, which is Pope Francis coming out. And declaring that the death penalty is wrong in all cases, which, as described at the New York Times, is a definitive change in church teaching that is likely to challenge Catholic politicians, judges, and officials who have argued that their church was not entirely opposed to capital punishment and I have there's two different angles that I want to explore it with this story. One has to do with the issue of capital punishment. As such, and the other, which is potentially even more murky and hazardous, has to do with just trying to understand as a non-Catholic trying to understand the theology and the the inst- get the institutional knowledge of how this even works. Maybe we'll start there. Maybe we'll start with the really hazardous topic of how does this Catholic stuff work? I, and I'm going to need your help on this. 651 nine, nine, five, five, five. Brad is girding himself. <laughs>
1: I'm laughing. I mean, my parents went to a Catholic wedding this last week and we were talking about how interesting it was to see all the ceremony and the meaning behind it, so yeah. it's fresh on my mind.
0: And look, you know, the, the, I'm not the, this is not an attempt to try to to do anything other than genuinely understand how this works because here's here's my issue in trying to wrap my head around this how something like this can happen and and have the impact that it's clearly going to have and is intended to have and maybe i'm understanding doctrine incorrectly entirely possible even likely but my understanding is that the pope is supposed to be as they say the vicar of christ right which I understand to mean that he stands in for Jesus Christ here on earth. In other words, he, he speaks on behalf of God in the same way that Jesus Christ did when he walked the earth. That's my understanding of, of how Catholics regard the Pope. If I'm wrong, please correct me. I need, to, I need to understand it accurately. And it's also my understanding that in that role as vicar of Christ— his theological proclamations, such as the one he just made here about the death penalty, are regarded by the church as infallible, meaning that it's absolutely right. It cannot be challenged. This is the way it is. This is, this comes down from on high, from above, from heaven, from God himself. And so, my question in light of that premise is how, how, Does something that change how can something be both changing and infallible? Right? So if if the death penalty was okay, this I don't know when he made this announcement. This is labeled August 2nd, which I think was what Sunday? Yeah, no, it was last Thursday. So let's say he came out last Thursday and he said the death penalty is wrong in all cases. On Wednesday, August 1st. The death penalty was okay, ostensibly, according to church teaching. What happened theologically? What happened in the in the the jurisprudence of heaven between Tuesday and Wednesday that suddenly made the death penalty not okay? This is what I, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around, trying to understand. And the only thing I can potentially come up with, in in a sincere effort to try to understand it, is that there. And and I fall back upon my own experience, because I grew up in, and I, I don't know how much I've referenced this on the show before. I I think I've mentioned it once early on when we first started the show, but a lot of you who've, been, who've caught on to the program over the past year, this is probably going to be news to you. I was born as a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, yeah, those guys. The people who knock on your door at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning to just <laughs> to let you know. That, you know, you, you need some help. You need to uh, read their magazines and convert to uh, their particular form of theology. It was fun. Like, being a Jehovah's Witness kid, oh, what a blast, let me tell you. Five meetings a week, three days out of seven, going door to door, talking to strangers. You know, it, it, it was... But you
1: it was couldn't watch the Smurfs. It must have been a pretty deprived I, childhood. Oh,
0: Oh, the list of things. We could, we could do a whole show, and we should one of these days, about what it was like to grow up as a Jehovah's Witness. The list of things that was prohibited by my mother, the Smurfs, because it was demonic. All these things were demonic. The Smurfs, the Care Bears, what else? Um, basically anything that evoked any sort of magic. I'm sure if I had grown up later, Harry Potter would have definitely been on the list of things that are absolutely evil and cannot be touched. Strangely enough, she let me she let me entertain Star Trek and Star Wars, and I think it's because she didn't understand them. Like that's I think if 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 I was I had to find things to entertain myself that were sufficiently confounding to my mother so that she didn't get it and then she'd be like, "Well, I I guess it's okay. I don't see a demon, so" I don't see a witch, so it must be all
1: right. right. Yeah, like, my parents didn't let me watch Rugrats when I was younger just because they thought it was a gross cartoon. Oh, okay. But then they realized, like, oh, they must have read, my mom must must have read in some parents' magazine that it actually, like, there's a right. little moral to the story. Right. Or, like, it worked, but it worked in my favor when it came to South Park, when I was probably watching a little too young, like 13, 14, and my parents just assumed it was a cartoon. Right. <laughs>
0: So at any rate, you know, I we go down this aside of my background growing up as Jehovah's Witness because there's something I can potentially relate to here. As a Jehovah's Witness, the the theology of the organization, as they refer to themselves, was constantly changing. You know, one of the one of the things you may be aware of from Jehovah's Witnesses is that they're they're date setters. They're constantly Looking at the the end of the world is nigh, the end of the world is imminent. It's just around the corner. There been if you look at their their history, there have been a number of times throughout the history of their organization where they've called out specific years and sometimes specific dates and said, This is it, the end of the world is coming here, and of course nothing happened. And eventually they learned, well, you know, maybe we should be a little bit more vague in terms of our proclamations of doom and gloom. And one of the ways in which they had, when I was a kid, what they were talking about is that there was a certain generation of people who were alive during the year 1914. And I'm not going to get into all the, into the, the red yarn connecting thumbtacks on the board that, that explains why 1914 is significant. But at any rate, the idea was the generation that lived during that time, during that year, would not die off before the end of the world well of course here we are over a hundred years later it's twenty eighteen and at some point they had to reform and soften their their proclamation they had to come up with another explanation for why the end of the world hadn't come yet and so i'm familiar with this idea this concept of changing theology and the justification that was given within the context of joe's witnesses was well we we get what they would call new light new light there's been a new revelation and so what we understood before was wrong because we lacked the light that we needed in order to understand it and now we have this new revelation that indicates the truth now Part of my difficulty with that, and part of the reason why I'm no longer a Jehovah's Witness and haven't been since I was about now 17 years old, is because it occurred to me, very at some point when I started to actually think in my teenage years, that if this is a thing that can happen, if if new light, if new revelation can come onto the scene and change doctrine, then that puts people in a very potentially awkward situation, you know, like, for instance, with Jehovah's Witnesses, one of their doctrines is they're against blood transfusions. They take certain very select passages within the Bible that condemn the or or prohibit the consumption of blood, and they apply that to somehow mean you can't have a blood transfusion. And so, you know, one hypothetical I would come, I would think about is, well, what if the new light emerged at some point and told us we can have blood transfusions? Well, what about the kid last week who you just encouraged his parents to keep him from getting the medical treatment he needed in order to survive, who ended up dying as a result? And now here it is a week later, and we've discovered this new light. Oh, if he'd only been, if it only would have happened this week, he could have lived. He could have been fine. Like that, there's there something inherently flawed with this notion, right? Like, obviously, if the doctrine can change, it can't possibly be infallible. It can't possibly be sourced from above. At least, you know, that's the conclusion that I came to that drove me away from uh, my childhood roots. Let's talk to Richard in Maplewood. Perhaps he has some uh, enlightenment for us on how the this theological stuff works in the Catholic Church. Richard, how are you doing?
2: Hi, I'm doing fine. i just, uh just, uh, I'm no expert on this, but I, I know... Pope has to talk uh, I think it's ex theta or something, something like that
3: mm-hmm.
2: where uh, that's the only time he's infallible otherwise the policy can, policies can change uh, one of the reasons the death penalty has changed is because it's no uh, we can hold people in prison so there's not a necessity mm-hmm. to kill somebody whereas in you know, you know, ages past, it was pretty hard to hold somebody in prison, so you'd put them to death.
0: Is that one of the reasons that's been cited for justifying the, the change in policy? And I, I don't even know yeah, how to refer to I, it. Is it policy? Is it doctrine?
2: I, I have no idea. I, I'm not really an expert on okay. it. That's a little bit I can offer.
0: So you you mentioned some, like a specific state or specific context in which the the Pope's declarations are considered to be infallible. Do, can you expound upon that, like when those circumstances arise?
2: Yeah, I'm not fully sure of the circumstances. There's okay. a definite circumstance. When he speaks, I think it's ex cathedra, or, okay. or something like that. I, 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 like I say, I'm not an expert.
3: Sure, sure, sure. It's sure.
2: only certain times that he's infallible. Right. Uh, otherwise, he says uh, policies change all the time. I gotcha in, in the Catholic Church, but there's only certain times that he, when he speaks, it's infallible. Like life begins at conception. Now, that uh-huh. I believe that was an infallible statement.
0: So, let me ask you this question. You might not know the answer to this one either, and then we're gonna have to go to a break, and we'll talk to Jason when we get on the other side. Um. If, if something has been said that is infallible in whatever context is required in order for that to be considered such, for instance, life beginning at conception, can that be changed in the future? Like, could Francis come out tomorrow and say, you know what, life begins after birth?
2: Not to my knowledge. I, I don't believe that can be changed. Okay. I, I, I'm no expert on this. I'm not a field. Sure.
0: No, I hear you. I, I'm just trying to get a, get some insider perspective.
2: Yeah, it's very few circumstances where he speaks infallible.
0: Gotcha. All right, Richard, appreciate the thoughts. And uh, we'll talk to Jason when we return and continue to take your call, 651-989-5855. Eventually we'll get into talking about the change itself in terms of uh, the declaration that the death penalty is wrong in all cases, and we'll kind of kick around the moral merits of that. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Talk.com. So Not so the typical topic fan. that we tackle here on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651 But I'm trying to get my head around how... Catholic theology and the the institutions of Catholicism work in the context of the news over the weekend that Pope Francis has declared the death penalty wrong in all cases. And specifically as a non-Catholic, I'm looking to understand when and under what circumstances papal declarations are considered infallible. And if this is a change from a previously, infallible declaration or, or how any of that works. And we got a couple of people on the line who are going to try to set me straight. Let's start with Jason in Delano. Welcome to the program.
4: Walter, love the show. Um, I'm a former Catholic, so uh, I was Catholic for 27 years. And, and uh, so I understand it, but someone else may have a better explanation. Uh, the reason I'm no longer Catholic is exactly this kind of issue. Um, I don't know if you're, Christian or not, um, but the Bible is infallible, and when man tries to uh, create theology, um, which is what the Catholics believe, that the Pope has the authority and is basically like Christ in a way, Mm -hmm. which the Bible does, says no man is like Christ, uh, that he can make determinations on uh, what is right and what is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they do believe that basically he is the representation of Christ on earth. Um, Last time I checked, Christ lived and died once, and we've had many popes, and they've Mm -hmm. done many different things, and anytime you involve man in the Mm decision-making, it's going to be fallible. We are all human, and we are all
0: uh, yeah, I mean, so, I, again, and it's, I, I'd be interested in hearing from uh, a, a current, and I very much appreciate your perspective, especially uh, having formerly been a Catholic. Uh, but I'd be, I'd be interested in getting it from the perspective of somebody who uh, continues to identify with the church, because, you know, the, what you're articulating is, I'm very familiar with, you know, from the perspective of, you know, evangelical Christianity of course there's doctrine right like that's why we have so many different denominations and there's there's constantly discussion and debate regarding theological concepts and you know the particular different avenues of thought but there's there's this kind of recognition that none of us really have the bullseye down right that there's it's kind of like this this effort to to if you want to compare it to sculpting, this effort to kind of carve away the 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 stone you don't need in order to get at a more perfect representation of what it is that we're getting after, which seems different than the notion that oh no, no, we actually we have the perfect representation right here, but then it changes over time, which is and
4: that's exactly odd. my point, and that they do believe that that the that the pope is the representation of Christ on earth, but yet you just explain that. That doesn't make sense. And so I think you're right on as far as the, the, the Pope, um, you know, is the uh, human uh, spokesperson for God. But again, the Bible says differently, and that's hard to uh, uh, see those things Yeah, come together. It just doesn't make sense. When you, when you read the Bible yourself, that's how you can understand what God wants you to
0: do. Not I follow you. On. I follow your argument, Jason. I appreciate you calling and share your thoughts. Appreciate you listening to the program. And again, you know, the purpose here isn't to you haven't suddenly turned into the Christian talk station. The point here isn't to debate the finer points of theology so much as to uh, uh, attempt to understand the context in which this remarkable switch in policy at the church is happening to understand how we we could get to the point where the Pope could come out and say that the death penalty is wrong in all cases. Lynn in West St. Paul, welcome to the program.
5: Hi Walter. Hi. How are you?
0: Good.
6: Say uh, yeah. I was raised a Catholic, and my grandmother was a Jehovah Witness, so I've got all the
3: answers
6: <laughs> here. Uh, um, the actual the, the doctrine of infallibility is called uh, ex when the Pope uh, speaks ex cathedra, which means from the chair. Okay. And it almost never happened. Gotcha. In fact, I know of only twice it's happened in the last 150 years. One was uh, when he declared the doctrine about 150 years ago, and the, the, the next time was when they had a declaration uh, about uh, Mary, the um, Immaculate Conception. Uh-huh. Any other teachings of the Pope are that. They're teachings. They're not gotcha. considered infallible. And the other thing is, even with an infallible declaration, we are always taught that uh, for it to be binding, it had to relate to religious matters and not uh, political matters. If the Pope uh, gets on the chair and, the, and tells you what the next lottery numbers are going to be tomorrow, you don't have to believe them. Uh-huh. But, uh, but the papal teachings are, you know considered to be you know authoritative and uh and uh but they're not you know they're not on the same level as scripture or even on the same level as uh, necessarily as uh you know uh um you know traditions
0: so uh, i i assume you're catholic correct well i was raised catholic
6: and uh I went to a minor seminary for for uh, several years.
0: Okay. And, uh, so you've got enough uh, experience to hopefully be able to provide some insight to this question, which is how, from that perspective, what do you do with something like this? Like if you, if and I don't know where you're at on the death penalty, but just for the sake of argument, right. hypothetically, let's say you thought the death penalty was perfectly appropriate and in line with your theological beliefs last week, and now the Pope has okay. come out and said this, what do you do with that do you do you feel obligated to reconsider your opinion or or do you do you just fall in line or what what's the the impetus
6: well i think if you were a catholic and uh and the, the pope issued uh, a teaching like that um you know you would be uh you know you'd be uh obligated to uh you know to uh to conform to that you know? i got you i mean uh and, uh, you know, uh, but like I said, it, it's a matter of, you know, but, but it's not a matter of infallibility. On the other hand, you wouldn't necessarily have to.
0: So, in other words, a future pope could flip it around.
6: Could change it. That's gotcha. right. And, uh, and a lot of times what the popes do is uh, instead of declaring something like that themselves on an important issue, they will have a bishop's conference uh, like, uh, you know, John Twenty Third did back in the 60s. Uh-huh. and uh and uh, put it before the bishops and uh, and issue teachings in the name of the bishops and uh you know that's the problem you know but a lot of people get the idea that you know uh, even Catholics get the idea that whenever the pope says something it's infallible well that's not the case and they I got you. they rarely
0: use that power and, I, I, and for I the <laughs> very really I find find it hard to believe that parishioners of any uh, religion don't fully understand their own doctrine. What are you talking about?
6: (laughs) (laughs) I never had the the chance to talk to my grandmother much about it, so I don't know, yeah. All
0: right, I appreciate uh, the thoughts, Lynn. We're we're late for a break. I appreciate you giving us some insight. All right, well having fun tonight 651-989-5855 we'll we'll get into the the issue as such the death penalty itself and the arguments pro and con when we return closing argument my name is walter Hatson, twincitiesnewtalk.com twin dot com all right so before we go back to the calls i, I got to get through a, a few paragraphs here of this new york times piece that reports on the change in, I don't know whether we call this doctrine or we call this policy or or what the correct way to refer to it is, but the change in Catholic teaching that's been decided by Pope Francis that now the death penalty is wrong in all cases. Closing argument, my name is Walter Outson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming at uh, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces this show. So, going to the New York Times, this represents a definitive change in church teaching that is likely to challenge Catholic politicians, judges, and officials who have argued that their church was not entirely opposed to capital punishment. Before, church doctrine accepted the death penalty if it was the only practicable way to defend lives an opening that some Catholics took as license to support capital punishment in many cases. But Francis said executions were unacceptable in all cases because they are an attack on human dignity. The Vatican announced on Thursday, adding that the church would work with determination to abolish capital punishment worldwide. Francis made the change to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, the book of doctrine that is taught to Catholic school children worldwide and studied by adults in a church church, with 1.2 billion members abolishing the death penalty has long been one of his top priorities along with saving the environment and caring for immigrants and refugees. And they go on in this piece to parse through the potential implications, because as it turns out, there happen to be a great number of Catholics in positions of prominence in public institutions throughout the nation and throughout the world. And so the question becomes, you know, if, if, for instance, if you're governor Greg Abbott of Texas, who has been a supporter of capital punishment and the death penalty are you now compelled to change your mind uh, because the Pope said so let's go to Jane in st. Paul welcome to the program
7: Hi, Walter thank you for giving me this opportunity um, the people that have called in previously are absolutely correct about the Pope speaking ex cathedra I'm a lifelong Catholic mm-hmm. and um, when the Pope does that he does it very rarely and it's meant to be something, hey, listen up here. Uh, this is a doctrine of the church that must be followed. Then the Pope will um, issue encyclicals on other important issues, such as he did uh, previously on, uh, and you've got to remember these are different popes. Okay? Right. Okay? Um, uh, that uh, there was an encyclical on birth control, mm-hmm. there was an encyclical on marriage, Christian marriage, Catholic marriage, mm-hmm. and when the Pope um has said what he said he's just reinforcing a tenet or a teaching of the church that states basically that um life is to be preserved from conception till natural death gotcha and that's exactly what uh he's coming out to and i'm sure that's what's behind some of this if we get a little bit more information We will find that out, that his thinking takes it all the way till natural death. There have been popes that have said that they can envision that there could be circumstances that would indicate that some such act as that uh, Mm -hmm. may need to be done, Mm -hmm. but this pope has said differently. He has said that uh, uh, the dignity of life from conception till natural death is to be reinforced that's a a doctrine to be reinforced
0: so i i don't expect you to argue on behalf of the church but i'm I'm curious as to if you have any insight into where the concept of justice fits into that thinking
7: Um, i will tell you right now that's one of the most perplexing things to me as a catholic because um justice uh for some people means social justice for others, it means uh, making a decision that says, well, this is right and this is wrong. And we've got these concepts all mixed up, and it makes it really hard, especially um, when you're trying to decide some of these different things. Like conservatives are always blamed for not caring much about the poor. Uh-huh. Well, the truth of the matter is um, a lot of conservatives care an awful lot because according to everything that I've read, uh, they're much more generous with their time and their money than some others. And as a result, I it's, so it can be very confusing. And I think this is why the Church uh, has designated those ex-catheter doctrines,
3: mm-hmm. then the
7: encyclicals, which are probably a step below, mm-hmm. and then this reinforcement of the teaching that life is to be preserved from conception until natural death. I got
0: you. So this is basically like a... a, a revised or reformed interpretation of a previously stated doctrine
7: stating restating the teaching of the church in a way that preserves that uh, um, the uh, dignity of life from conception until natural death It's he's reaffirming it
0: gotcha appreciate the call jane Thank appreciate you. the insight uh, from a uh active catholic let's talk to brad in jordan welcome to the program
8: Hello. Hey. How you doing? Doing all right. Um, You know, this whole thing about everybody talking about everything, life and death and Catholicism and and religion and everything, I mean, it's just like, you know, it is what it is.
0: Isn't it, Walter? I, I... I'm a big fan of the law of identity. I do, in fact, believe that it is what it is generally, but I don't well, follow what you mean in this context.
8: Well, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and explain it to you. I mean, the, you know, I mean, the the laws that we abide with and everything, and it's been going on for centuries, right? Right. You know, a life for life, this, that, and the other thing. And, sure, uh, sure,
0: sure, sure. Right. Um I'm, 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 I appreciate the, the the call, Brad. We do have to go to a break, but yeah, I I'm similarly perplexed by what I perceive. And look, let me let me say this: as a believer myself, as a Bible believing Christian, and you know, we've talked about this in the context of you know, conservative criticisms of Islam and a lot of the the things that get said about Muslims in the public discourse. There's nothing more annoying as a believer than to have somebody who doesn't share your belief tell you what you believe, right? Like to define it for you. And so that's not what I'm attempting to do at all here tonight. I'm genuinely seeking to understand the the theological and institutional context in which this choice by the Pope took place. But as I interpret it through my own cognitive and theological lens, I'm perplexed by how this jives, how how you reconcile this with things like Abel's blood calling out from the ground for vengeance and the, the eye for an eye life for a life sense of justice in the Mosaic law. The, the, the fact that the whole, the whole rationale, the whole reason why Jesus Christ came down from heaven in order to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all mankind is because those sins in fact were due death that the, the death, Penalty is something that God came up with himself, and so how is it that we're now dispensing with that how is are, are we going to say that God doesn't hold life to be sacred when he declared a death penalty for countless hundreds of thousands of people throughout the biblical narrative? you know the flood comes to mind uh the, the hell comes to mind i mean there's there's so many circumstances theologically speaking in the Judeo-Christian tradition that indicate that God's pretty okay with the notion of people having to die as payment for their sin, as payment for their crime. How is it that we got to this point where in our civil discourse as as politicos, we're determining that it's somehow inappropriate to have a death penalty in capital crime cases. 651 989 Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So, I admit, we got a little sidetracked this car. <laughs> Diving down into trying to understand the... The institutional inner workings of the Catholic Church and uh, how it is that uh, this declaration from Pope Francis that the death penalty is wrong in all cases, how that even came about, what it means, what the implications are. And uh, it's been fun. Appreciate you guys contributing. 651-989-5855 closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We'll get to Tom and Ian Prairie real quick here, but I just want to, you know, to put a bow on the conversation. We never actually quite got to debating. The death penalty, as such, I kind of touched on it a little bit at the end of the last segment as, as to what my thinking on the subject is. I've always found it interesting this argument that the sanctity of life or the dignity of life is an argument against the death penalty. To my mind, literally the opposite is true. The sanctity of life and the dignity of life is an argument for. The death penalty, because we're not talking about, you know, killing people who just willy nilly randomly without any sort of context. We're talking about putting to death people who have committed crimes against that sanctity, against that dignity, against life itself, against humanity, people who have committed capital offenses, offenses which which ascend to a level or decent to a level, depending on how you look at it, that's so grave that the death penalty is due as justice for their crime. And this is kind of a recurring theme of our discussion here on the show, wherein increasingly it seems as though justice is an elusive concept within our supposed justice system. You know, justice is the putting of things right. The, the, correcting of wrongs the balancing of the scales and if somebody has committed a crime that is of a heinous enough nature that the only possible way to set the the injustice right is to put them to death then that's what they ought to get that's the the recompense that they ought to receive not not as a deterrent not in order to keep people from all these things are secondary concerns. And that's where people put their focus is well, it doesn't deter people from doing things, or you know, it's not protecting somebody from necessarily you, you can protect the public by just putting them in jail for 80 years or whatever the case may be. And to me, those are all secondary concerns. Protecting the public from recidivism is a secondary concern to justice. Deterring future crime is a secondary concern to justice. The objective of the justice system is supposed to be to affect justice as such. And when death is called for in order to make that possible, I don't understand why in the name of the dignity of life, we're going to ignore a crime against that dignity. Let's go to Tom and Eden Prairie. Welcome to the program.
8: Hey, thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. Boy, as always, you have had a great discussion going on. I really appreciate your show. I called in a few times.
0: Appreciate you doing so.
8: So I'm a lifelong Catholic, um, and I love my faith. Mm -hmm. I was uh, lucky enough to be adopted as a baby by a great family, and... I've never looked back. My mom and dad are my mom and dad, and yeah. you know, I've got a lot of friends that have always question, "Well, aren't you curious who your real parents are?" And it's like, "Well, no, my real parents are the ones that raised me." Right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's maybe people that haven't been in this situation have a hard time understanding sure. it.
0: But, I but it makes perfect sense connection. to
8: me. Yeah, a special connection with this idea of sanctity of life, and it, that perplexing question of the death penalty. I always struggled with it, mm-hmm. but you just articulated, while I was on hold, how I feel, mm-hmm. because I do support the death penalty as a civil institution. Now, it's not the church putting somebody to death. Right. This is not the church. This is not the religious body. Right. This is the civil. This is Caesar's, right? Right. Separation and protecting the sanctity of life. If there is somebody so heinous, so evil, you know, so terrible, mm-hmm. then that is the protecting of the sanctity of life.
3: Right. So, you know,
8: again, I really appreciate how well you can articulate this. Um, I've only been I only discovered show a few months ago, and man, I, I, I'm addicted.
0: <laughs> well, hey, I, I, I love to hear that. I appreciate you calling, appreciate you listening. And thanks for contributing to our discussion tonight. Yeah, I mean, look, again, I go to the the entire biblical narrative and the gospel as such what the gospel is in a 22nd nutshell it's the idea that sin against God is so heinous that we all deserve to die and God didn't just brush that aside he didn't just say well you're not going to have to pay the penalty for the crime against me what he did was he provided a means by which the price could be paid by someone else, namely his son. And so this idea that we're somehow going to to get around the necessity to affect justice by putting somebody in a jail cell rather than putting them to death when the crime that they've committed is worthy of that. It, it strikes me as a, a shirking of our responsibility to affect justice rather than an effort to preserve the dignity of life. Closing argument, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. We spent quite a bit of time last night talking about the situation with Alex Jones and his brand InfoWars, Prison Planet, and what have you, that have been kicked out of a variety of social media platforms and what this portends in terms of the direction that our culture is going and you know this all happens in a context where you have the New York Times posting op-eds, arguing against the freedom of speech, arguing against the First Amendment, leftist academics openly saying, yeah, we liked it back in the 60s when it was useful for our political agenda, but now that it's being used to the benefit of conservatives and corporations and our political enemies, well, now something simply must be done. Now we need to shut it down. Now we need to ban people. Now we need to kick people off of platforms or what have you. And, uh, you know, it's it makes sense that they would start with Alex Jones. Go after the guy who's controversial. Go after the guy who ruffles feathers, who's who's least likely to get a, a a lot of people jumping out to defend him. You know, a lot a lot of people probably applaud at no longer seeing him in their newsfeed, and then slowly but surely, incrementally expand the circle to include more deplorables, more undesirables, until finally you've locked down the 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 entire public discourse, and locked out your political opposition. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Brad Omlin takes your calls at 651-989-5855 and produces the show. And uh, due to Brad's diligence, we have with us on the line Scott Bronson. Who is the uh, affiliate relations manager? Hopefully, I'm getting that title correct for uh, Alex Jones and Infowars. How are you doing tonight, Scott?
5: I'm doing well, Walter. Good to meet. Uh, good to meet you. Good to talk with
0: you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you coming on the program tonight. And you know, I I just kind of want to start. and This is a a unique opportunity that we have to kind of get an inside perspective on what it's been like for you guys to to go through this. I I assume as the affiliate relations uh, staff person at InfoWars that your job entails uh, keeping the the radio empire, so to speak, together. Is that correct?
5: Uh, radio and television is, is where I, I do most of my focusing. And um, as far as that goes, when this happened, uh, more stations called and told me, you know, what can we do? How can we help? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Alex doesn't get any, he doesn't get paid, uh, from stations he 's one of, you know like rush and all them they have stations that pay uh for the, them to be able to play Russian and thing, things like that, and Alex is very adamant that he never wants to do that, so it 's not like these stations are paying to to have our stuff on, and they i mean we have a pretty good working relationship with them, so you know when it first happened um we 've heard from more managers calling to say, you know, is there anything we can do? Is there anything, you know, anything that we can, you know, how can we help type of thing? Um, The TV side, uh, that's a little bit newer, but um, I mean, we've kind of had the same thing. I mean, we we deal with mostly people who kind of agree with not necessarily everything that we say, Mm -hmm. but they like that we ask questions. Um, When, Like one of the beauties of Alex for these places is that he Sometimes he just asks questions that he, he you know, he asks the, the silly questions, you know, uh, the big one is, you know, is the water turning the frogs gay, right. you know, things yes. like that. Uh, that's a, sens- he sensationalizes, you know, the stuff that he read. Sure. And that's what makes people pay attention. Right. Um, but, you know, so asking you know, a lot of these places that we, the stations that we deal with and the, You know, both in radio and TV, they like that he asks the question, and he doesn't seem to just follow uh, an agenda of uh, a driven agenda. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and that same tendency seems to be a part of what has has uh, factored into this backlash that that you guys have received. Now, I I hear that this move wasn't entirely unexpected. Was there any sort of sense that this was coming down the line?
5: Well, I mean, Alex has been talking about it. Uh, I've worked with Alex since, uh, what, 2000 and probably 2011 was the first time that I, I met Alex. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I've worked with him every, you know, on a day-to-day basis um, since February of this year when, when he asked me to move down to Austin. Uh, but before that, I was working uh, with him uh, through GCN and in uh, other places. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he he's been talking about for about five years that this this was coming right and and so as soon as it happened it it was uh it it wasn't unexpected uh it was a little bit unexpected how it all came down uh you know what, what you had youtube facebook uh Spotify, Apple, Pinterest, LinkedIn and Mailchimp all banning us within a within a 12 hour period. Sure, right. Um, yeah. and so like the whole the, the wave was a little bit bigger than expected. Um, but we we have things that, that we were putting in place and getting ready to uh roll out that we're just we we just kind of ramped up a little bit quicker on on how we want to roll that out.
0: Yeah, preparation has always been a strong theme of the of the work you guys do over there. I'm sure you you had some contingencies uh, in play. That so, in terms of the the effect that you guys see on this having on your well, before I get into that because I do want to talk about the future and what you envision for how you guys are going to to roll with this punch. But uh, I I want to get into the um the the effect that this has on the message that alex puts out there because you know this is consistent with the kind of thing that he's warned about for years that that this type of, of clamp down on expression was coming in a in a sense does this help you guys that that in, in a kind of a weird unintended way that they've actually done exactly the kind of thing that alex said they were going to do
5: um yes and no um the, it, it, in the way that it helps us isn't necessarily in the sense that um
0: that you would want
5: <laughs> in, in the sense that we were right you yeah. know not necessarily in that sense but um the the part where i can say where it's helped us is that um i mean for a while here it, it kind of felt like alex was you know kind of a little bit drifting, waiting for the next next shoot to fall mm. type of thing mm-hmm. and uh as soon as it fell um he he's super motivated right. Uh, right. he's he's right back to feeling like he's um he's got through something, yeah. and they think that this is gonna end him right. and the the you know the only thing was is that he figured out how to use YouTube faster than other places did. Right. Uh, they shut down um what i think it i think the they shut down five five youtube channels mm-hmm. which had a total of uh like five million subscribers right. um or close to like two and a half billion views mm-hmm. and when you when you compare that to places like you know fox news or m s n b c or even c n n um he he was right up there i believe cnn was the only one that had more and they kind of had to deal with uh, with they seemed to have to deal with facebook or not facebook but uh, youtube to promote their stuff so it, it was uh the the only thing that made it made it weird is that he figured out how to do do the youtube stuff before before youtube even really kind of right. figured out right 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 so uh, you know it, it it helps us in the sense that now we have um, we have a motivated uh, Alex right, again, sure. uh, and he's he's
0: got a fire. So, so how how does that translate then into moving forward? I, like I say, I, I imagine there were some constituencies that were kind of on deck, and you guys have a vision for how you're you're going to proceed. Uh, this obviously isn't going to shut Infowars down. So what's the plan moving forward, or how much can you reveal?
5: Um. I'm not I'm not sure how much I can review, but I can tell you that um, InfoWars has 100 employees,
3: mm-hmm.
5: um, right around 100 employees. Um, we're in, you know, three different buildings. Uh, there's a warehouse. Um, if they can figure out a way to get people that, to stop supporting them, um, it could affect us. But, I mean, we're completely self-funded. We don't have any... Uh, up until now, we haven't had any sort of sponsor, outside sponsorship. And, um, like I said, uh, you know, it, it, a highly motivated Alex who, regardless of what anybody thinks about Alex, if you spend five minutes with Alex and he engages and starts talking, he is very, uh, he has an energy about him and that energy is back. And it's, uh, I mean I, uh, honestly uh I, I feel like they kind of awoke a sleeping giant because now it's back to I mean he he was on uh he he's doing interviews again with people yeah. and, and for 5 years he refused to do interviews with people. Right. Right. Um right. the last one I think he did was with uh Megan Kelly. Uh-huh. Um but um, so they have a, a motivated Alex and, you know, everybody, everybody that works there, um, kind of feels like we're fighting up.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've followed Alex Jones' work for many years going back to about 2001 or so. And, and so I remember the days where, you know, it was much more low tech than, than it has gotten in recent years. And this, this kind of feels like a, Kind of, kind of like the effect that a, a forest fire has, where it, it burns down a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of, of apparent destruction, but it ultimately has a creative purpose in terms of restoring the the forest bed, so to speak. And that 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 Alex is going to find himself in a very familiar position that he's been in before, where he has to work with uh, with tighter constraints, but he thrives in that type of environment.
5: It, exactly. And the big thing about this is, like when you like you mentioned at the beginning, um, this, what this means for free speech is is probably is probably a bigger a bigger line than than what I think, mm-hmm. uh, than what I thought. You know, when he would talk about, oh, well, they'll 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 cut us from here, and and we'll be the we'll be the first the first ones to go. Yeah, which always made sense because Alex has kind of always written that line. Yep, but. It also, after it happened, it made me think about what free speech means to me. Right. And for me personally, free speech isn't, it, it, while it's important to me, I think free speech is even more more important to somebody I disagree with.
3: Correct.
5: Uh, because if they can't voice their disagreement with me,
3: right.
5: uh, we can't have a dialogue and we can't right. talk. And if me asking a question is the thing that that turns me into a deplorable or, or something like that, right, uh, that's a problem.
0: Well, unless we forget, you know, it's one thing for me as uh, an individual Facebook user or YouTuber or whatever the case may be to decide that I'm going to block the Alex Jones channel or not, not get notifications from the Alex Jones page because I don't want to engage with it. But the result of the actions that were taken this weekend is very specifically designed to get between your organization and people who want to engage with it, it's it's actually trying to prevent people from engaging in relationship and evaluating things with their own minds. And there's something profoundly Orwellian about that.
5: Well, it's the you know, it, it, it's the burning of books.
0: Sure, that's um, right. That's
5: exactly what. It is. And that, and that's uh, that's a bad place to be in as a society. Yeah. Um, I, I I told uh, I was talking to some family of mine the other day, and I said it feels like we're closer when it comes to speech right now. We're closer to Mao's China than we are to 1776 America. Mm. And, and and that's uh for me that's a scary thought. Sure. sure. Like that's a really scary thought because I've never had a problem with somebody that disagrees with me. I've never right. ever. I've never had the thought that I want that person not to be able to speak their, right. their, their mind or, or tell That's me right. their ideas. That's right. And, and the, the fact that, and I understand that Facebook and all these places are, are private companies. Sure, um, absolutely. Uh, but a lot of people, a lot of my friends that were outraged over the NFL making a policy where you can't protest during the uh, an anthem, Right. It, they, were, <laughs> they were mad about that. But they're excited that Facebook and YouTube have, have you know, and, and MailChimp and all these places have decided to take a man off the internet. Yeah. Um that that's weird. Um and I I'm not one that has said that people can't protest the anthem. Whether I agree with their protest or not, that's their choice. But, but they should have that choice. And it's for for me it's just weird. It,
0: it's weird. I appreciate your, your joining us tonight. Scott Bronson, uh, Affiliate Relations, uh, staff member for InfoWars and Alex Jones. And uh, we'll we'll keep up with you and feel free to reach out to us as stories develop. Uh,
5: thanks a lot, Walter. Have a great
0: night. Yeah, you too. 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name is Walter Outson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. We just spent some time talking with Scott Bronson, affiliate relations staff for InfoWars. And uh, he shared his insider perspective on what it's been like to be kicked off of virtually every major social media platform, many of which have been leveraged over the years to, to propagate the InfoWars brand and the commentary of Alex Jones. And, you know, look, I, I, this has nothing whatsoever to do with affirming the particular merits of any given content that Infowars has put out. That's irrelevant to the matter at hand here. Whether or not you agree with Alex Jones about literally anything is completely irrelevant to the question of whether or not he ought to be able to freely express it. And again, you know, we get caught up in the legal argument of is this a violation of the first amendment because it's private companies as opposed to the government? No, it's not a violation of the first amendment to the, to the United States constitution. It is, however, a violation of the spirit that informs that amendment. Like, why do we have the amendment in the first place? Right. Like, what's the purpose of it? What are we trying to get after with the freedom of speech? The notion is, is that there's value, there's inherent value. In the free exchange of ideas. Now, there's no qualifier there in that sentiment. There's no qualifier that says the free exchange of correct ideas or the free exchange of moral, virtuous ideas or the free exchange of thoroughly vetted and scientifically proven ideas. It's the free exchange of ideas, period, period, regardless of their merits, because that's that's how we determine merit, the question of merit in the first place. And, you know, are we going to leave this to individuals? Are we going to leave this to people who are interacting freely with one another to determine uh, on their own and through their chosen relationships what is true and what is false? What has value and what does not? What has merit and what should be dismissed? Or are we going to trust to institutions controlled by oligarchies or individuals to determine for us what is appropriate and what is not? And to my mind, there's no contest between the two. One of the comparisons that Scott brought up was book burning. That This is very similar in effect and in sentiment and intent to the burning of books. And I think that's accurate. There's a story here at the Pioneer Press. Amazon says it has removed items with Nazi or white supremacist symbols from its website after criticism from advocacy groups. And Amazon executive said the company blocked the accounts of some retailers and might suspend them. Democratic U.S. Representative Keith Ellison of Minnesota complained to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos last month, the company's vice president of public policy. Brian Huseman responded to Ellison, telling him that Amazon prohibits listing pol- products that promote or glorify hatred, violence, or intolerance. Now, violence, I understand, right? Like, violence, that makes sense. Why you would prohibit listings that promote or glorify violence, although I'm, you, you could go down the list of... Hollywood films, and very quickly root all those out if you're going to apply this standard particularly strictly. But, you know, glorifying hatred and intolerance, by whose standard? Who's determining that? And, you know, more to the point of this question of freedom of speech, what do you think the impact is? You know, you're in business, even a business as large and seemingly untouchable as Amazon, what do you think the impact is of a U, a sitting US congressman coming out and publicly rebuking you for your business practices? Is that an idle threat? You know, it's kind of like when you're on the street and you're engaged by a police officer, a police officer comes up to you and starts asking you questions, regardless of whether or not you've done something wrong, you're immediately back on your heels, right? What, what what's going on here? what have i been, what do i need to do to get out of this situation because there's an implied power well not just implied an actual disparity in power in that relationship and that's true also of when keith ellison goes around posturing talking about your company there there's an incentive to immediately comply with whatever it is keith ellison wants in order to get him to go away now you know the you can you can make the case i think with a high degree of merit that it's bad for your brand to be selling Nazi propaganda and items and memorabilia on your website. And I don't have a problem with Jeff Bezos or anybody else at Amazon saying, you know what? We're not into that. We're not going to sell that stuff. We're not going to facilitate the propagation uh, of of these things or the, the uh, monetization of that community. That's fine and dandy. More power to them. What, I support that as an expression of their values, right? Like if they're saying, look, as a company, we don't want to be involved in the propagation of these ideas. What I have a problem with is this overriding notion that's embodied by the likes of Keith Ellison, that there's some sort of, of public obligation to exclude from the public discourse certain points of view. And that is where the comparison to book burning really comes into play. You know, as I read this article, the thing, the thought that came to mind is, what are we going to do with copies of Mein Kampf? Because, you know, I, are, did they even have that in the library? There was one in my high school library. I checked it out just because I could. Right. So are, do we need to get rid of that? Do we need to burn Mein Kampf? In order to affect social justice? No. If you read Mein Kampf, no
1: one today would be influenced by Mein Kampf because it doesn't make any damn sense. Well, of course it doesn't. Of <laughs> you read it the doesn't. thing and it doesn't make any sense because there's so many German words that are hard to translate.
0: Well, and-, but, and, and therein lies the point. is we, we don't need to be afraid of stupid ideas. We just need to, we need to chase after virtue and chase after rationality, and chase after morality, and instill them in our institutions, and in our families, and in ourselves. And that insulates us from the stupidity. The idea that we're somehow going to, you know, if you think you're going to be influenced by, you know, whatever it happens to be, a book, a website, a Twitter account, if you're worried about the influence that that's going to have, then Rather than trying to get rid of all the things that you're offended by, you should be focused on empowering yourself with the ability to discern right from wrong and true from false and engaging in a in a rational discourse that's aimed towards that end. And that strikes me as a superior solution to the problem. But what do I know? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. You know, it's gotten so bad, I tripped upon a post that Sue Jeffers put up on Facebook, ironically. Speaking about one of our competitors in the Minneapolis market here, apparently they've been... Uh, kicking around, kicking the tires on a few potential replacements to one of their uh, mid-morning hosts. I'm not too familiar. I, I, Honest to God, I'm not just trying to be like a, a corporate partisan here. I don't listen to this station, and I'm unfamiliar with their talent, but apparently they have this guy who's been on in the mid-mornings for quite some time who is leaving, and they've been testing out replacements. And the City Pages has this, this article that's very clearly designed to gin up opposition to the conservative direction that this station is going. In terms of, you know, one of one of the people that they've apparently tested out is Bob Davis, who used to be on the morning show here on this program alongside Tom Emmer, who went on to be the congressman from the the sixth congressional district here. And so that gives you a flavor for, you know, the the type of a personality that they're particularly interested in adopting over there to to replace their outgoing host and this that's enough for the city pages to initiate a preemptive campaign to try to stop them from having a conservative talk radio host this is where we're at where you know they, they we we got to have institutions out there actively policing Actively looking for violations of thought crime.
1: Well, and what's dumb is that nobody who reads city pages, or very few, listen to this station. Right. This is AM radio, folks. This is for old people, (laughs) not
0: people who read city pages. Uh, But, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that a constituency that, that does not cross over with a customer base was able to affect that business's operation through, you know, threats of boycott or just generally drumming up bad publicity. Well, and I think
1: to a detriment to City Page's argument if they are considering conservative hosts, I mean, he's I've never listened to the guy. He if the WCs or it, if they're considering him like uh, it's he he must be a good host objectively right. like right. you know regardless of his political ideologies. Right. But um, it draws the attention to the fact that yes the money in talk radio is still in conservative talk radio
0: yeah well and we and there's i, huh, I have some thoughts as to why that is that perhaps we can go over at uh, some other point closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am eleven thirty, one oh three five 1035 fm streaming twin dot com and your iHeartRadio radio app 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Thanks for holding.
9: So I wonder if these actions by Facebook and YouTube and some of the other sites that are, that's going on doesn't prove that they're more uh, publishing places yeah. than they are hosting places, right. and if that's, if that's the case, then doesn't that change the paradigm in which they operate? Because a lot of the lawsuits that they've defended themselves against, mm-hmm. they've said, well, we can't control what gets posted on here. Right. We, we only react after we get done, but but they're not doing that. They're preemptively going after people now. Yeah. How has that not changed the paradigm in which they operate
0: well, I think it does. I think it absolutely does. Now whether or not that will be recognized under the law is a separate question, but absolutely, you know that we uh this has been discussed at length by Ben Shapiro, you know, he talks about the difference between a platform versus a publisher and by 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 very conscientiously because it's not just the this action It's this action in the context of various statements from various executives at all of these different companies affirming this idea that the time has come in the age of the resistance against Trump to take a stand, to take a position, to be moral agents, agents of change in the culture, and and to speak out and to, to do something in an activist nature to try to shape the dialogue and combat fake news and combat hatred and intolerance and bigotry and you know fill in the blank and if they're going to do that then at what point you know ironically while facebook is making me jump through all kinds of hoops in order to put out a dumb little ad for this show and they're also by the way i haven't even told this story the The most recent thing is they're trying to go go after me or make me jump through a bunch of hoops in order to maintain the page that i have on facebook related to my municipal election campaign from four years ago. They've got new rules for that. So they're going to go through all this trouble in order to, to control speech on the, the, the justification being that we need to be able to, uh, protect people from speech with which they disagree. And yet at the same time, they're, they're in, in engaged in conduct that's exactly 180 degrees opposite of the principles that they claim to believe in.
9: Well, and, and that's, that's what I'm curious about. Is won't that ultimately cause Facebook and YouTube, at least particularly, to lose stock value because of the the, the whole liability that will come with that? Because the one big lawsuit could literally end them. <laughs>
0: Ah, uh, well, I, I don't know enough about the structure of their company or their finances to, to have a, an educated guess as to that. But certainly there are potential legal repercussions. Appreciate the call as always, Barry. You know, there's always potential repercussions to, uh, changing your modus operandi, especially when you've been referring to yourself in a, in one model, you know, that being a platform and then you start behaving in a different model, that being of a publisher. It, uh, it's definitely something that could potentially have an effect. Speaking of changing your whole paradigm, changing how you look at the world, changing your own identity itself, there's a study that comes out of the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships that found an overwhelming majority of folks would not date a transgender person. Now, this falls into the category of didn't need a study for that. Didn't need a study to tell me that. Right? Like, this one had figured out on my own. Yeah.
1: It's just anecdotally, like, you can figure it out. Like, people who date... I think people who are cisgender date people who are cisgender. Right. And people who uh, are genderqueer or bi or bi or, uh, or consider themselves trans uh, are more willing to date someone who is the same. And le- yeah. probably less willing... Maybe... I mean, maybe that like a person who's genderqueer likes someone who is the opposite, you know, like, Oh, well, I'm a man who considers myself a woman, but I like a manly man. I don't know. But that's, that's the
0: minority. I would say Uh, uh, again, I find myself envisioning the, the scraps of magazines and newspaper on a whiteboard with red yarn, strung between them in order to explain your orientation and why you like what you like. And, uh, it's, it's all quite confusing. It's just like Apple Jacks. They eat what they like. Oh, I gotcha. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> we'll get into this piece over the Daily Wire that breaks down this study and the subsequent uh, rhetoric coming out of the LGBTQ community when we return. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. One of the chief discoveries of our exploration of the news over the course of this program since we've been on the air year and a half or so at this point, coming up on a year and a half at least, one of the chief discoveries personally that I've made is the the revelation, the recognition That the left doesn't actually care about virtually anything that they claim to care about. And we've been talking about this quite a bit as of late, as it relates to the freedom of speech as modeled in what's being done to Alex Jones right now. And uh, I mean, there was a New York Times article that, you know, where leftist academics are openly expressing their disdain for the First Amendment and free speech. And also when it comes to race issues and racism and this idea of tolerance and racism being something that we need to do something about, it's, it's quite obvious, you know, you look at the Sarah Jung story and whatnot, that the left doesn't actually care about these things. They don't actually care about freedom of speech. They don't actually care about racism. They care about affecting their political agenda, their Marxist revolution, their their desire to undermine the status quo and to disrupt the power dynamic and to put one over on the oppressor class. That's really what they're all about. And they're going to use whatever means is convenient in order to affect that. There's a very peculiar manifestation of this tendency that is highlighted over at the Daily Wire. A new study published by the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships found that an overwhelming majority of folks would not date a transgender person but wish to date a person of the sex and corresponding gender they are attracted to. Now, this is, uh, this is a good contender for most obvious statement of the decade, perhaps even the century. You mean to tell me, hold on, you mean to tell me that people want to date others of the, pers- of the sex and corresponding gender they-, they are attracted to? I'm shocked. I'm absolutely shocked. A cisgendered heterosexual male wants to date women. And by women, he actually means people who are equipped with female genitalia. I'm shocked. I would have expected otherwise. By women, I mean non-men. Right. By women, I mean at no point have they ever been a man or could have rationally been confused for one. Right? Like, that's, that's kind of the standard we're throwing up here. When the studies broke it down further, a near majority of those who claimed they would date a trans person did so in relation to their biological sexual orientation, not in line with the gender the trans person believes themselves to be. In other words, people generally only wish to date people who belong to the sex they want to date. This was not only shocking to them.us, a pro LGBTQ blog, but was chalked up as discrimination driven from transphobia. Now, here's here's the question that I have coming out of this because this is this is a emergent theme that you can bet is you you have not seen the last of this. This is going to be a new thing, this drive that you actually have to be you're obligated because of your status as an oppressor because of the privilege that you enjoy as a cisgendered individual you are obligated to change your sexual preferences in order to accommodate the underclass, known as transsexuals, the oppressed class, known as transsexuals. You have to give them a chance. You have to become attracted to someone that you're not attracted to in order to be woke. That's now the obligation that's being put forward. Now, I have a question about this, and it strikes me as, Rather mind-blowing, this question. Which is it? Are we supposed to affirm people's sexual orientation by respecting and celebrating their preferences? Or, because that's what we've been told for years, right? Like, you you must affirm, respect, even celebrate and applaud somebody's sexual preferences, no matter what those preferences are. Or because they're theirs and they have a right to have them, right? Or... Are we supposed to berate people into changing their sexual preferences in order to conform with the emerging social norm? Because that's what this is. When you're going around telling people, Hey, I know you're attracted to women, but we really need you to expound that to include men who say they're women, right? In order to be woke, in order to be tolerant, in order to be with the new thing, in order to be jiving with the new program, You have to actually change who you're attracted to. How is this fundamentally different than, say, gay conversion therapy? Because one of the things, if you want to get a lefty animated, just get into talking about gay conversion therapy. The idea that through some sort of therapeutic process, you can take somebody who is homosexual and you can actually get them to abandon their homosexuality. You can get them to through, you know, typically this is something that's associated with Christian ministries. And the idea is that through an act of God, a person is brought out of sin and restored to heterosexuality through the will of God. Now, that is anathema. That is horrifying to the left, the idea that this is something that anybody would even think of let alone expect or try to put somebody through. It's been described as traumatic and abusive. In in some cases, I believe, there have even been efforts under the law in some states to try to outlaw this practice of gay conversion therapy. How is it fundamentally different to come up to me and say, you need to start being attracted to transsexual people?
1: I mean... Thankfully, I don't think a lot of people are saying this because it speaks to the what you're saying, the biology of it that people aren't. And even even someone who might claim to be woke and support trans rights, which is certainly, you know, you're okay to do um, like at the end of the day, they realize that that's not how it works.
0: Well and it like the 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 logic of this seems to implode in on itself like to collapse under its own weight because w- at what point once you've detached the notion of gender which is apparently supposed to be fluid now right once you've detached the concept of gender from biological sex past that point what does it even mean to have a sexual orientation like if you're if you're gay, which means that you're into people of the same sex, biological sex as you. But then somebody else comes along who's the opposite biological sex but believes that they're the other gender. <laughs> you're now supposed to accept them. And that's one of the things that's highlighted in this piece is the notion that only in total only 12% of those surveyed said they date a trans Male or female, and this is of identified uh, people who identify as being uh, homosexual. They said only twelve percent of them surveyed would date a trans male or a trans female, meaning that even within the homosexual community, they prefer their partner to actually be the gender that they're looking for, right? And so, you know, it's just like the the piece talking about feminism that we discussed. where When you actually undermine the definition of the word women, feminism can no longer be a thing. When you actually undermine the definition of male and female, homosexuality and heterosexuality cease to have any sort of effective meaning. This is the stupidity that we've gotten ourselves into. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.